Hello, everybody. This is your host, Aram Mukumuf, and you're listening yet to another episode of the Product Innovation Show. Thank you for joining me. Uh, every week, the guests that we have on our show talk about their stories and wisdom on how to ship a great product. Today, I'm joined with Manuel Breshi. Hope I said that correctly. Uh, who is the direct Breshi? Okay. Who is the director Breshi. of product at uh, Typeform? Uh, which is a no-code SaaS platform with tools that help companies grow their business by engaging with their audience. Uh, he studied at the University of Illinois, where he did his MBA and has expertise uh, in product engineering, business management, and marketing. Manuel, thank you so much for coming and sorry for screwing up your last name. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine. In the English world, it's all, I've always been brushy rather than brisky. Uh, it's the brushy. CH that is pronounced K, I, I, I guess, just in Italy or something like that. So. I got used to that. <laughs> no worries. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, thank you for having me. First question I'll kick off with is from when I was going through your, your, your career experience and your background, I think you went from being in, from working in consulting to then entrepreneurship and then to product management. Was this kind of like part of some sort of elaborate plan or was it just kind of uh, happened this way? Well, actually, in fact, I have to say that my first job was as a product specialist for uh, the implementation of a CRM packaged application in an international pharmaceutical company. So I was just out of the university. Uh, we did a degree in IT engineering and, and I landed this very interesting job. Uh, the only thing is that I wasn't really sure how to approach it. It was very much, uh, let's say, business oriented and product oriented. And I had a technical degree, so I was, I was a bit lost. Um, consultancy actually came later on because once uh, uh, after spending some years as a product specialist for this uh, CRM international implementation, I realized that I could work uh, effectively in international markets and also expand my knowledge about uh, enterprise software, both on customer relationship management and, and business intelligence, and also being my own boss, right? So. Uh, that's that's a dream for everyone, at least uh, also at, at a young age. Later in life, <laughs> not so sure. Um, and then during the period 2004-2007, I was also attending a PhD from the Engineering University uh, of Florence, where I graduated also and I got my master in IT engineering. Um, and that paved the base for a new software. And then afterwards, I I would have launched uh, in 2014 at Oracle Open World in San Francisco. So I would say that entrepreneurship, uh, I always had an entrepreneurship uh, mindset. Uh, given I also approached consultancy, the consultancy days as an entrepreneur, as well as a product person, because I also during consultancy, I constantly work in, in parallel on my eTools software that we launched then in, uh, in San Francisco in 2014. And, and which MVP I actually used with uh, with many clients of ours. So product management has always been there in reality. Uh, the fact is that if you go back 20 years in Europe and you ask anyone about product management, they would have answered you probably just about manufacturing and industries, not software. So in Europe, you were either you know a functional guy or a technical one. Uh, and there was project management in the middle that actually was really also a passion for me at the beginning because it was a kind of, it was not product management, but it was in any case handling the end-to-end -end life cycle of a, of a product. So being an engineer and having a project management certification certainly helped. Um, and that actually is what 
is what I loved to be as an entrepreneur because I love building HMP products to the market, but there weren't really product management positions in Europe at the time. So you had to, to do it on your own. So one thing that I learned actually in life is that uh, you need to do your best in the contingency and constraints that you live in. Uh, and honestly, I'm proud of what I did and what I achieved. Uh, but also for this reason, uh, what I would do, would have, yeah, I mean, maybe I would have done something different. So if you were to do something different, I mean, with everything that you know, what would you do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from a career standpoint, investing in Europe is tough. You have a much tougher uh, way ahead compared to the US. Um, mm. I would have probably moved to the US uh, permanently in 2012. Uh, I actually had an opportunity um, at that time to join forces with an entrepreneur, a French one, French guy uh, that moved to the, to the Valley. Uh, but honestly, I didn't have the guts to do it at that time. So a career, I would say a career in Europe and a career in the US are two totally different things, above all in product management. As I mentioned, product management was already there uh, in the valleys from the beginning of the century, to be honest. Um, so it would have been actually probably more beneficial uh, from, a, from a career standpoint. I would say that now, maybe after COVID hit and you know this new way of also working remotely has democratized the way for companies to access talent and for, you know, for any professional to, to be able to, to use their, uh, you know, their skills uh, in an international setting. So probably it's, it's a good, it's a good thing. Um, in any case for the US, actually one of the reasons I attended uh, the MBA and I graduated from the University of Illinois is because apart from the quality of the education itself compared to some European MBAs, I, wa I wanted actually also to connect with, uh, with the US much more all right so lesson is <laughs> could have stayed in the u.s but now with everything you could be anywhere <laughs> exactly exactly awesome awesome all right um i want to talk about biases um <laughs> so there's a few different types of biases i wanted to discuss with you so first one it's um well general like decision making bias in in mm. product um mm. so it exists um what are your thoughts about how to hmm. count, counter any kind of decision-making biases in product management? Well, I would say in product management, you have the same biases that you have uh, also in life, personally. Um, I mean, in general, the most common ones is uh, the most common one is uh, cognitive bias. Um, I think there is a research that suggests that there are more than 175 different types of cognitive biases. Um, that's basically a, a deviation from the standards of judgment, uh, where you either create in inferences, assessments, or, or perceptions that are actually unreasonable. Um, and you may also recollect past experiences incorrectly. So if you apply these kind of uh, cognitive biases uh, to a product, then your product, of course, is going, is going to suffer. Um, and also because they may dictate uh, the person's behavior or attitude uh, in a positive or a negative way. So, but in product, there are different, uh, also different uh, biases uh, based on data, based on processes. It depends on the framework. Like, unfortunately, product management is still not a discipline. Maybe likely, it's not like you get Prince II certification in project management. There is no, there are several approaches, but there is who 
pushes for product market fit or pushes more from a funnel standpoint or pushes more like data-driven approach. So there are very different ones. Um, and I would say if you, like all these are biases. Like if you, if you, if you apply blindly a framework to a product simply because you studied it and it worked in your past experiences, then exactly where you, you start uh, using cognitive bias plus a framework in, in spaces that maybe are not, uh, is not going to, to get the outcome that you want. <clears throat> so cognitive bias seems to be a big one. And I, you know, you mentioned a few ones like uh, product market fit, um, data-driven, there's also like sales-driven culture, right? <laughs> From like sure. a product standpoint. Um, maybe we could focus on one. Um, let's talk about data-driven. Um, yeah. It's, it's one that I think some people that I've spoken to really kind of focus in on. They, they, they double click into that and they, you know, really get fascinated and, you know, sometimes like overwhelmed by what you could get out of it. Um, other people just kind of use it as like, just like, a, you know, it's there. Like it's not helping me make the, the final decision, right? Um, it's just yeah. a reference point. In, in your experience, and I know uh, you're currently working at Typeform and, you know, even in your past experience, like, how much has data-driven biases uh, uh, impacted or positively or negatively um, your product decision-making process? Mm. Well, first, let me um, let's say address this thing about like data-driven being a bias. Like for me, um, I'm not sure being data-driven or data-driven approach is is a bias. Um, I mean, in general, I don't like stating that someone is, is data-driven unless uh, they are a mathematician. Uh, because what you should be is data-aware. Um, that is different because honestly, also when it comes to hiring, right? I don't care if you have a technical background or not, simply because that depends on, on, on the role, on the specific role I'm hiring for or the team that is, that is needing that specific uh, thing. If it is a, for a technical PM, then yeah, of course, I expect a technical, probably a technical degree or at least a period of direct experience. Otherwise, I'm not, I'm not specifically looking for that. Um, but being data aware is another thing. Data aware means that you need to be able to measure the performance of, of your product, the usage um, that your customers make of the, the features and overall the, the entire product. The funnel or the customer journey also is, is fundamental. And so understanding how to define a metric and follow up uh, on reaching it or not, it's, it's, it's crucial. You can't measure the performance of your pro. If you can't measure, let's say, that, that the performance of your product, then you are just guessworking. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, if it is data driven sense that you should be just take decision based on the data, then it, 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 uh, it brings me back to the, to the bias. Uh, because if you think that you can measure the future performance of, uh, of your product based on past performance, then you're going to be. Uh, disappointed. Uh, that's not what uh, what happens. So usually, it's better to be data aware than data driven. Uh, because if you drive your decision just based on data, that's not enough. And you could just you could just reinforce a strategy that maybe worked two years ago, 
But guess what? Uh, the market has changed. And probably, yeah, you can derive the data from, from there. But imagine that your product hasn't changed. Are you going to stick just on the data that you're tracking with your product? No, you shouldn't. Because then, otherwise, you're just, I don't know, you're just focusing on the same customers. Let's imagine you want to focus your next strategy on the customers that have the highest LTV, lifetime value. Because those are mainly the ones that are more profitable and they are that are stickier. Um, but then you're you're basically um, staying afloat with the same approach. You are not growing, so you always need to look at the market, uh, getting uh, in touch with the customers. So there is also quantity qualitative analysis, not just quantity. So that's my 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 take on. And so just from like a, uh, from a data aware standpoint, like <clears throat> just, I'm just curious, like, um, with some of the products you are working on now or have worked on in the past, I'm sure there could be a lot of historical data points, um, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, uh, you getting access to it and trying to understand yep. how people are using product and, or like, et cetera. Yes. Um, how can you effectively leverage those in order to make future decisions? I mean, you, you're only kind of getting historical data, right? Like it's yeah. things that's happened, of right? Of course. Like, yes. Um, how, how does that help you impact, um, your decision-making process in terms of like future things to do? If you, if you, uh, so first of all, like you, you always need to use the data as a baseline. Um, but, uh, you need to, First of all, decision, you know, decide what's the vision, what's the added value proposition that you want to put up there, what is the cost, the target customer base that you're after. Maybe you haven't done a good job. So you need to first, you know, having this uh, mission statement, vision, and a strategy. Then the data will help you understand wait, where I am, where am I in the journey of winning my customers with my product. Um, because if the data tells you that the specific segment of customers that you're after have a higher churn than maybe another segment of population, then you're doing it wrong. And mm -hmm. then of course you need to correct the track. So then what you can do to steer towards the right vision is starting making some hypotheses. That means being data aware. So you need to make certain hypotheses and then you need to prove or disprove the hypothesis. Like A-B testing is just one of the, of the ways of, of, of doing that, right? Um, and hence, you can start experimenting and, and, and checking the direction towards uh, your, your objectives. So you can, uh, you can test hypothesis and it's safer than taking uh, assumptions for sure uh, it's also less riskier right uh, so you need to find in any case the right velocity of course to, to execute that awesome i uh, what are um so we talked about cognitive biases like are there any other are there any other types of biases that you've come across that uh, can impact good decision making um yes uh, i've seen lots of times confirmation bias uh, and it's always the, honestly, it's always the strongest one. Um, like people look for similar people, uh, like minded, like minded uh, ones. Um, there's no way it's always, it's always that 
kind of feeling, even you know, on Zoom or any other uh, digital channel. Uh, there is always a kind of we are looking for confirmation from from the other side or even from the data or from or from the product. Um, when it comes, for example, to to hiring, you often see very good candidates that are filtered out simply because the hiring manager can cannot establish a proper communication uh, with a candidate, and they immediately takes a defensive approach, and that's the worst possible attitude that you want to have. Uh, when you recruit, you need to think about. First, the diversity of your team, and I'm not just talking about LGBT plus, that is really important. But I wish that was the only bias and discrimination out there. There are even, you know, more subtle ones that are even more basic. And the main one is culture, and this is something that in Europe it's uh, it's common because we are, you know, we are not used. We speak uh, different languages. We are spread across different countries with different rules, with different uh, styles of of living. And uh, in reality, I think that the responsibility of the recruitment stands on the on the hiring manager side, because um, what you need in your team is first of all what you want. Actually, you want different perspectives. If you mm -hmm. surround yourself only by yes people, you will never grow. So and so your product will never grow, um, because it needs to be appealed. Also, because if you think about it, like the product, even if the job to be done for product. Is the same. It needs always to appeal different typology of, of customers. Customers are people, so ultimately it needs to it needs to consider different perspective. Um, and the best way actually to avoid confirmation bias is to accept to be challenged, at least as a hiring manager, for example. I've hired very skilled PMs, uh, not alike PMs, um, and uh, is the only worst outcome that you can get from hiring very diverse teams is that you improve yourself and the product. Interesting. Um, moving on to another kind of topic that I wanted to go through with you is around um, design thinking and prototyping uh, on the product mm -hmm. team. Uh, you've talked about it, I think, before when we had a chance to last connect. Um, and I want to kind of explore that a bit more because, you know, sometimes you have to make tough decisions, right? Mm. Um, in terms of like how you go about something. So I wanted to just ask, you know, in your experience, how, how can us, how can a product team successfully go about, um, or approach design thinking? Well, design thinking, uh, is very useful when it comes to the ideation phase, uh, in teams, um, how I approach it. Uh, like, for example, I consider myself a very creative, uh, person. Um, yet I noticed that even for me, that the moments I'm most creative is when I challenge my assumptions and I collaborate with the others. And that mm -hmm. reconnects to the, the diversity of your team, having different perspectives and above all, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of a safe environment where people can express themselves, otherwise they wouldn't be uh, represented. So uh, this way, honestly, you know, like having design thinking embedded in the way you collaborate with your teams is a way to ask questions and kill assumptions that are the ones that ultimately will, will weigh and for which you will pay a price in terms of product evolution. Um, for me, prototyping is not only a way actually to validate uh, a potential solution from different perspectives, but also to reduce, uh, as I mentioned, the risk in, in building something. Um, so for me, 
even before checking, you know, following a framework blindly, teams should first check each other's perspectives. That's like the, the, the ideation phase. And identify also the initial assumptions. Like if you can identify the initial assumptions of every team member, you can better understand the team member. And at the same time, you can avoid uh, falling into pitfalls uh, later on in the, in the design of, of your product. Mm -hmm. How, what, what's a good, what's a good exercise or uh, approach you've taken with your PMs in order to kind of like level check everybody's uh, assumption process, you know, <laughs> like, mm. you know, I'm just curious, like, you know, well, you get you a new start, team member yeah, and, yeah. you know, you don't know what, how they think or how they would go about analyzing something. So. Oh, you involve them from day one, and that's about inclusivity. Um, and that's why you want them since the beginning. You want, or you always want fresh perspectives. So you know, you set up a board, whatever if it's in the digital world or in the physical world, and you start putting, you know, you're asking questions, and you get answers. And these answers sometimes you actually get assumptions more from the from the existing from the people that are working in the team because they are going to think kind of in the same direction while you're going to be challenged by new new perspectives and that is the most refreshing uh, the most refreshing part and then uh, and then you, you you actually see that and that's why also you know different perspective and new people new joiners they actually can bring a new perspective and open open the eyes in in, in your brain uh, of the other team members okay cool uh, last question, Manuel, before we get to the fireside, which is going to be those quick uh, answers. So you worked, you know, quite a bit in product. What's like the worst ever product or feature you ever had to deal with that you could share mm. with us and explain why you think it was the worst I'm not going to tell you. No, it's, it's <laughs> I think it's coming from my uh, uh, kind of consultancy days, honestly. Um, the consultancy in product, right? So... Um, Probably it was a dashboard that was developed for a financial institution. Uh, so the product itself was a dashboard that some bankers had to consult. Um, it was a, it didn't go that well. Um, and what would I have done differently? Um, it's funny because I would have suggest using another framework completely, another framework and another software to get what the bankers wanted because the product and the schemas in that specific case that were developed were not fit for purpose. So they want to retrieve some data and like the schema was not flexible. It was just like, you know, you know using a bazooka to actually, you know, to move a, to move a needle. Like, it, it didn't make any sense. And that's another important lesson in product. Like sometimes you need to take all decisions as, as we mentioned before and leave an unsuccessful path to start over. And this happens, happens honestly so many times. Uh, like users need solutions to problems, not tools or products. And the most, the worst thing that you can find is like having products that have been pre-selected and then you need to adjust them uh, to meet uh, the customer needs. That's the worst, like, because then you, you're just trying to fit the product that maybe was, you know, uh, conceived uh, for a specific purpose in, in a different way, in a way that, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't match the, the needs of the of the customer, and also like why should you build something if you can seek alternatives or substitutes? Like before you start creating anything in product, every one of us in product should always think about the substitute competitions that are out there. Always remember like you're not going into the market with the product 
always to compete with someone else. Often you compete with a substitute, with maybe free alternatives. Um, so it doesn't, does it make sense building something from scratch? You know, uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no, because building is expensive and reusing is cheap. And uh, from different types of reuse and mix and match, you can actually create something new without the need to start from scratch. We started, uh, you, you started uh, uh, you know, the introduction talking about product innovation. Innovation comes from, from this process. Uh, innovation comes from mixing and matching different solutions and putting them together to solve maybe a new problem. You know, mm -hmm. think about it. Like how many how many consumers and businesses use just one applications to solve their problems? I would say not so many. The multiple times we refer to multiple products to solve one more complex problem. Like think about like even like even online uh, on the mobile, how many applications do we use? And at work, how many tech stack software do we have in our company to do to basically live our and uh, to do our uh, daily job? Um, and that actually is the perfect opportunity to, to create something new because um, there is a gap uh, using, if there is a gap, like you can't do something or you need like three, three four different products to achieve a workflow or a business process, um, you know, using multiple solution is expensive and usually the experience sucks. So if you're able to actually introduce one unique way and one, one product that can fit multiple tests, then probably you are up onto something, uh, something interesting, something innovative in, in the market. I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of uh, using off-the-shelf solutions to uh, solve maybe an MVP problem instead of trying to build, some, build one. I think, in a, in a, I think in my final point on this before we jump to the fireside stuff is... Sure. There is, I think every technology, every solution for the most part has already been done, like in today's time, like there's sure. just so much stuff out there. You might not know about it, but it probably exists. Right. So, sure. um, I, I really agree with you that, you know, when working on the solution, it should really fit your user's need, not, you know, not anybody else's. So I think that would be my main message I want to get out to who's ever listening is like, do your analysis, see what other um, solutions already exist, competitors or, you know, like like or like solutions and see if you could just use those, right? Instead of trying to build something. Yeah. Um, or review, first of all, review, like even, even, even higher level, like, are you, like you're using something to solve a problem. Like first question is, what are you trying to do? Mm -hmm. Because maybe you're already using the wrong product. <laughs> the, the wrong product. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, I love doing these fireside uh, questions. Okay. So they're sure. uh, short questions, short answers. Okay. Try to try to keep it down to a couple a couple sentences. It's always sure. hard, but uh, let's, let's do this. All right. Uh, first question is: uh, What product? Um, what what should people in product start doing tomorrow to ship hmm. better solutions? Um. To ship better solutions. Um, well, you know, I'm thinking about actually. I, I'm thinking uh, from another standpoint, like uh, what should be, you know, the best product for the future. Uh, 
next big thing. Um, and, and in my opinion, it should be a real metaverse for remote working at this point. Metaverse for um, remote working, okay. Yeah, because again, yeah, too many tools to handle communication and productivity. I think the next big winner will be the one introducing the platform where you can spend your remote, uh, your remote working day on. Okay. And what aspects of product development money can't fix? Money can't fix bad quality and poor experience derived from wrong assumptions. You can throw all the money you want, but if you haven't done proper due diligence in advance about the why and the what, then you're doomed. So true. Uh, now, this question is more tied to like um, the amount of uh, user input you want to get when building out a product. So at what point do you ask users what uh, they want you to build for uh, their solution and when not to do that? Well, to be honest with you, like given where I started from, I see this very often in consultancy on the services side. Um, also, in that case, you need to ensure that the customer gets what they need and not just what they want, what they're asking for. Although, in that case, if you are in consultancy, you might build more if that happens. So maybe, maybe it's good. But absolutely not in SaaS products where the user does not match the profile of the ICP around which you build your strategy. Like, if it doesn't match that, think twice. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, at what point uh, can you throw money at a product problem? Um, with a problem with the when you have properly validated the product market fit and to beat competition on time to market and alternatives. Okay, awesome. And uh, this was an interesting one. I like asking what what do people uh, what do people believe? Uh, sorry, what do other people believe that you th that isn't saying that you do? Um, I think that people believe uh, that he's insane, whatever they don't understand. What, whatever they don't understand? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, advice to 30-year-old self. Take it easy. The world is not going to end tomorrow. And invest more in yourself than in your uh, five, uh, you know, nine-to-five daily job. Okay. Now, sorry, let me rephrase my last question. What hmm. do you believe that other people think is insane? What I believe that other people think is insane, people usually think that what they don't understand is insane okay? because they jump to conclusion. See what I mean? Okay. Yeah, okay, got it. Okay, um, last question. What would you want to accomplish? Uh, what might you do to accomplish your 10-year goals in the next six months if you had like a gun to your head or you had no more time left to do something? I would simply reset my expectations. <laughs> I like that one. Awesome. Um, any final parting words, Manuel, to the audience that you want to, that you want to share? I, I would say, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. Um, I think anyone that wants to, to discuss any of the topics or about product management, product innovation can reach out to me also on LinkedIn or directly through you. I will be glad to have this kind of conversation. I've done also some mentorship and doing some mentorship every now and then. So happy to, happy to contribute to the product management work. Awesome. Yeah. I'll, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, 
when we share the episode, we'll tag you and uh, uh, find a way to get these people to reach out to you directly as well. So thank you, Manuel. It was a pleasure having you on our show today. Uh, thank you for thank coming you. and sharing your uh, wealth of knowledge. And uh, to all of our listeners, thank you again for always tuning in and supporting us.